This week on the Backtable Podcast. Nobody should be telling us how to do these procedures. We are physicians. We have decades of experience. There's a reason our triggers are going off, that we recognize the risk of airway loss or inadequate sedation. And I think the access to care argument, in my mind, falls flat because if you need it, you need it. And you shouldn't compromise, I think, patient safety or the humanity of care you deliver. And I think part of our evolution as a specialty is the more IRs that are entering the OR space, the easier it will be to get anesthesia. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. Now, a brief message from our sponsor. If you run an OBL or ASC, you know the business of healthcare is constantly changing. That makes it essential for you to have flexibility and choices in your OBL and ASC. Medtronic is the partner you need. Medtronic offers you access to one of the most extensive cardiovascular health portfolios in the industry a customer choice rebate program for you to choose your equipment needs, and the Medtronic Advantage program offers pricing options to maximize savings and streamline invoicing. Whether for the procedures you perform today or those you're planning in the future, Medtronic has what you need to build, grow, and transform. Get in touch with your Medtronic representative or explore options online at medtronic.com OBL. And now back to the show. Got a great episode today. Chris Beck and I are both co-hosting from Paris, France. Happy to have Chris over here in Paris with me. Welcome, Chris. Yep. Thank you for having me. Actually, for the Back Table audience, the listening only audience, I'm actually even in Aaron's apartment in Paris because mine is like a temporary Airbnb and it's just like we're on top of each other at that place. So thanks for having me. Yeah. So we've got a two-room studio here and we got Vishal Kumar from UCSF. Everybody's familiar with. He's been on the show multiple times as guest host with the Health Equity Series. Chris, remind me which episodes those were. So I got Vishal on episodes 250, Evolution of Trauma Care, 247, Teaming Up on Trauma, and then the whole Health Equity Series, which is one, two, three, four, five, six episodes. So yeah, a seasoned pro. Yes, exactly. Vishal, welcome. Thank you, guys. It is an honor to be here. And I, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't jealous that I wasn't in Paris with you. Well, I know. And we got to hang out last year at uh, Guest MSK, which we'll give them a little promo here. Vishal, are you going to make it back this January for Guest MSK? Yeah, that's my hope. Absolutely. I learned so much at that conference. It was amazing. Awesome. Yeah. So maybe that hopefully Chris will be able to come too. I think it would be embarrassing <laughs> if I didn't make it. It's in it's in the city, right? It is. It is. I think it's like yeah. January. I'm not going to butcher the dates, but it's somewhere in January. Yeah, yeah. I'll be here. So, all right. Well, today we are going to talk about, we've been trying to get this one on the books for a while now, is discussing anesthesia versus moderate sedation versus even local and what kind of cases, you know, what that decision tree looks like for us as IRs, for even for other endovascular specialists, when do you decide to call in the anesthesiologist for a case? Or when do you say, you know what, local's plenty for this for this case. I've seen people do all different types of things, but Vishal at UCSF, we had a, we had a pretty in-depth conversation about level of anesthesia, what people have access to, which is another key component of this. Vishal, before I get started, this introduce you to the audience in terms of like the UCSF program. Tell us a little bit about the training program where you're at. Yeah, absolutely, Aaron. So I am a 
former graduate in 2013 from the UCSF Diagnostic Radiology Program and then the Interventional Radiology Program. I got to train under the legends, you know, Dr. Gene LaBerge, Roy Gordon, Ernie Ring, Mark Wilson, Bob Curlin, and came back and joined faculty in 2015. And now I essentially get to teach at, you could say, five different hospital settings. And prior to that, I think locum's experience, I've, you know, I've kind of been around and I've seen different IR suites. And we have a tertiary care center that acts as a transplant center with some of the sickest people I've ever seen at the main UCSF campus. And then where I do most of my work is at San Francisco General Hospital, which is both a safety net hospital and a level one trauma center, which I think has really opened my eyes to, I, I think, the entire spectrum of potential that IR really has and can be. And, you know, we could talk for hours about, I think, our specialty and just how broad it has gotten and how many different types of patients we treat. Just listening to your G-Tube podcast from a couple of years ago, I thought it was enlightening because no G-Tube is almost the same, right? Like one IR could be talking about a G-Tube procedure that has a totally different outcome or indication than another practicing IR somewhere else. And so it's hard to make broad stroke generalizations, but I think it's really up to us as the specialists and the experts who know just how complex these procedures can be, I think, to make the right decisions for patients. So thanks for talking about this. Actually, I think that's how this topic came up was we were talking about G-tubes, I think at dinner even. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yep. It all stemmed from the G-tube. Yeah. Back to basics episode. Yeah. And so why don't we start with that as the use case? Like, I'm glad like we have Vishal on the horn because he's practiced in a lot of different settings from tertiary super sick patients to, I mean, you probably, you guys probably have some like in the five hospitals or maybe even seen in locum's work, some super low acuity community places where it's a little bit more of a ragtag bunch rather than like the, you know, the pro elite status that you probably see at your two main hospitals or the, or the, you know, the two level one and the tertiary hospital, right? Yeah. I mean, I think I've just been blown away by how terrible a setting can be to set up an IR practitioner and their patients for abject failure. And then when done correctly, I think IR is nothing short of a miracle. It's magic in medicine. But there's a lot of empty space in that middle, you know, for interpretation. And if you're doing a G-tube on a patient who's post-stroke, hemicrany with a major traumatic bleed, and there's no decorticate reflex... Yeah, maybe you don't need general anesthesia, and as long as your airway is protected, local anesthetic is sufficient, and there's data that supports that. But we've got patients at our UCSF Parnassus campus that are part of this ALS cohort, and I think we've performed about 150 G-tubes over the last few years on patients with ALS, and there's no way any of our nurses with over 50 years of experience feel comfortable sedating those patients, because if they lose their airway, it's a, it's a catastrophic outcome. And we have, I think, some of the world's best anesthesiologists who are there mainly to rescue and to support because there is literally no level of sedation that they can receive that is safe. And these patients cannot be intubated because they can't be extubated. And so it's not even that we're using anesthesia to do the sedation. It's almost like we're doing the case with local only, and they are there to make sure there is not a code or loss of airway during the case. So I think the presence of anesthesia really does make IR stronger. It just it gives me such a reassurance that if things go wrong, we are going to be able to rescue. We can handle that pericode situation before it escalates to full cardiac arrest. For sure. And for the audience, I thought it'd be good to start out with just some basic definitions. 
start with like what does local entail to you guys? What is maybe light sedation, moderate sedation, deep anesthesia, and then general anesthesia? And so, Chris, I'll start with you in terms of what do you consider the, let's just go with like local, moderate, deep, and general. Keep it simple. Sure. So local would just be for me lidocaine only. There are plenty of situations which we don't, I mean, it's more than local, but you give like an opioid, like we'll give fentanyl only in addition to local. Moderate sedation for us is fentanyl and Versed. That's like standard operating procedure. That's like our burgers and fries almost everyone gets, but occasionally we'll sub out fentanyl for Dilaudid. And then anything above fentanyl and Versed will fall under, for us, like deep sedation or GA. And basically, at that point, just turn it over to anesthesia, the anesthesia colleagues, and they take care of that part. I think that at least the way I think about anesthesia is there's from nothing, like so you don't give your patients any local anesthetic to all the way to deep anesthesia. And there's it's a spectrum along the way. And so which drugs you use, the amounts that you use. So even if you're using fentanyl and Versed, but you're using in heavy doses, or if you're doing a fentanyl-only case, so you're quote-unquote not really doing sedation, but then you you layer on like a cocktail like beforehand, like Zofran, Benadryl. Yeah, I think you're kind of in this realm, like where you're on a spectrum of like you're getting to moderate sedation. So that's how I kind of think about it is more on a spectrum than like these formal definitions of now you're in moderate, this is deep sedation, this is GA. Michelle, curious of your thoughts. Yeah, no, I, I think Chris, you hit it right on the head that it's absolutely critical for us as providers to understand that sedation operates on a spectrum. And the concern is that for some patients who are high risk, and we can talk about which ones we should be aware of, you can really easily slip from what we consider moderate sedation into deep sedation inadvertently. Or the other flip side is that we cannot adequately sedate to control for pain or anxiety because a patient is so sick, that our medications of fentanyl and Versed are not sufficient, are not as powerful as propofol, Presidex, uh, ketamine, in providing patients with the level of sedation that they need. Yeah, I agree. So regardless of the procedure, I feel like when we go to consent and we talk to the family and the patient and or patient, a lot of that consent discussion is around the procedure itself, not so much the anesthesia. But is there anything that you guys are tend to try and get across when it comes to whether, because the anesthesia all just, you know, they do their own consent when it comes to when they're involved. But for us, when it's local or moderate, is there anything specific that you guys discuss with the patient or their family when we're talking about moderate sedation? I'll start with you, Vishal. Yeah, I think informed consent is one of the most critical steps in the entire process. You have to meet patients where they are. Having worked, you know, you mentioned a couple of the podcasts centering around trauma care. I think part of my evolution as a provider has been centering trauma-informed care as part of my approach, my perspective, and clinical decision-making. And just because we're minimally invasive doesn't mean we don't have the potential to be maximally traumatic. And I think there tends to be a bias within minimally invasive specialties that this won't be that bad. It's not going to hurt that much. You know, it's just a pinhole. But I don't know about you guys, but over 15 years of being a witness to radiology and IR, I've seen some pretty heinous cases across my systems where either sedation cases went way too long, patients clearly were not sedated correctly, and... I think it kind of contributes to this moral distress, burnout facet when you're part of cases that you don't necessarily want to be part of this malicious compliance process because it doesn't feel good, right, to have a patient who's feeling like they're being tortured. 
So one of the first things I always do with my informed consent processes is to ask about their trauma, to, to ask about the expectations going into this case, to ask if prior IR procedures, either by myself or my colleagues or that they've experienced, have been traumatic. Because if you have a patient who says, I don't want to feel anything, I don't trust you, it's hard to convince them that local only is going to be sufficient. It's hard to convince them to trust you with moderate sedation, especially when the last time you used moderate sedation wasn't successful. So I think it's absolutely critical that, you know, we establish sort of a, a, an understanding early in the informed consent process to then help us gauge what level of sedation will we need. So that's kind of my take on the informed consent. Yeah, and Vishal, that's a great time to bring up a question that Ali had is, and you probably see a lot of this at UCSF, and I'm sure, Chris, you see a lot of this in New Orleans, is is people who have a history or current drug addiction, you know, users, abusers, whatnot, that have obviously a high tolerance. Where do you see those conversations going? I'll start with you, Vishal, and then we'll get to Chris. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we've identified, you know, patients with either opiate or alcohol use disorder. And the concerns are when we see patients on methadone, because obviously the nursing staff feels that they will not be able to adequately sedate patients with those altered levels of pain tolerance and opiate tolerance. And so that is slowly becoming a identifiable metric in a patient's history that may elevate the need for anesthesia or a discussion about the sedation plan. Yeah, I would echo what Michelle said. Is that very similar? I see a history of substance abuse. I have a very low threshold to move those cases for anesthesia. I mean, I think there's plenty of cases where if we're doing them under local only, like, you know, something that comes to mind, it's like a thyroid FNA or something. Oftentimes, if I can talk that patient off the ledge and, you know, reassure them that we'll be able to keep them comfortable enough and it's really the anesthesia is going to be riskier than the actual procedure, then, you know, I can sway them. But, you know, going back to what Vishal said, it's it's kind of meeting patients where they're at, like what are their expectations and then the their history with anesthesia, whether it's they have, uh, you know, past history of, you know, substance abuse just is one layer of that for me. But certainly if I do hear that, I have a, a much lower threshold to pull the trigger with anesthesia. One of the things we've run into a lot, we have a pretty busy spine service, like I think many service lines do. And then I, I feel like we do a lot, a lot of disc biopsies and if it's a substance abuse patient, then I'd almost always just, you know, they're going to be prone for my procedure. And even though it's a relatively quick procedure, I'll just get anesthesia involved and, and put them out and then pull. it kind of hits the easy button for us. Got it. So next thing I kind of want to talk about was what kinds of procedures are you just automatically, definitely general anesthesia or at least deep sedation, you want airway control, you want the patient to be absolutely motionless for what you're going to be doing. Some examples that I think of are tips, kyphoplasty, and biliary drains would be in, and tumor ablations. But would you agree with those and, and any any others that are just knee-jerk? Oh yeah, let's call anesthesia. They're definitely going to be involved. Vishal? Actually, before we get to that, I'm curious, and, and I'll kick it over to Vishal. Once you kick it over to anesthesia, do you, I, I know sometimes like where you're going to have opinions of whether you want the patient paralyzed or not. But do you have like a strong opinion whether or not they go GA versus just deep sedation? Yeah, I think that's a total conversation with the CRNA, nurse anesthetist, or anesthesiologist. But if I need apnea for my cases, then it's, you know, total paralysis. But sometimes I'll tell them, oh, you know, a MAC is fine. And then the anesthesiologist will say, well, this patient, they're not going to protect their airway. They've got a malampotty 4, their obstructive sleep apnea on CPAP. So then in that case, I defer to them. 
Yeah, same, same. Okay, so sorry, now we can kick off back to what Fritz was saying. Like, which which procedures do you think are, are near knee-jerk anesthesia consult? Yeah, I think this is a challenge because some of the, we'll call them wiser practitioners who were back, you know, there in the uh, the early days of IR, I think kind of boast themselves on having done TIPS and PTBDs and tumor ablations without anesthesia. But you talk to those nurses and they were very uncomfortable having to slip between deep sedation and moderate sedation. And so I think we've seen at UCSF a transition to TIPS, fresh PTBDs, tumor ablations, the big cases being done with anesthesia. But I think there's been a newer trend, and this may trigger some people the wrong way, but for me, I'm almost thinking that declot procedures are starting to become one of these automatic anesthesia consultations, and I'm happy to talk about it and my justification. But I think the more I practice... And the more I believe that IR is a real specialty that no longer needs to prove its validation or validity in medicine, that if we want to be recognized as true clinical experts, we have to be the ones to correctly categorize which patients need anesthesia and which ones don't. Let's definitely dive into the D-clot. Tell us more. Yeah. So one of my guiding principles as a provider is the ASA classification system developed by our anesthesia colleagues because I think they are the experts when it comes to these issues. And the ASA has been around since the 60s. It's undergone some modifications. But I think some people argue that the ASA is subjective. And I have a hard time conversing with those people. Because it's a very pretty objective, right? Clear cut definition of what constitutes an ASA-1, an ASA-2, an ASA-3, up to an ASA-6. And I think in IR, as we are treating sicker and sicker people, we are really in the realm of ASA-3 and 4. And just to be clear for the audience, ASA-1 is a patient who we deem as normal healthy. ASA-2 is a mild systemic disease like diabetes, hypertension, hyperlipidemia. When you get to ASA-3, we're starting to talk about obstructive sleep apnea, BMI over 40, history of TIA stroke or CVA, and then anybody who's on regularly scheduled dialysis is an ASA-3. So it doesn't matter if they're a 25-year-old with a working fistula or a 96-year-old coming in for a fistulogram, those patients are, by definition, at the very least, an ASA-3. And then ASA-4 starts to really increase the potential risk, I think, for patients that we could talk about some of the data behind that. But now we're talking about recent stroke. So it's technically, ASA-3 is by definition a severe systemic illness. ASA-4 is a severe systemic illness that is a constant threat to life. And I think that distinction is prone to bias from the providers, that we may underscore a patient's severity of illness due to a multitude of reasons. Uh, that we think this procedure won't be that traumatic, that we think that the partial PE that we're going to give them during the declot won't have that bad of an effect on their heart. And I think it's important to recognize that in the ASA classification system, anybody not undergoing regularly scheduled dialysis, which to me is a person with a clotted fistula or graft, is by definition an ASA-4 patient. And if you look at hospital policies including your own, or if it's an OBL, you may find somewhere some legalese that says for ASA-4 patients or higher, an anesthesia consultation is required. And a lot of people may not like that, 
they may not be able to practice under those guidelines and principles. And I would venture to guess that the majority of declots happening across systems are not being done with anesthesia. Yeah. Chris, what do you say to that? If I knew you've had some pretty hairy declots in the past. Yeah. So I, I don't disagree with anything that Michelle said. Our practice is very much still moderate sedation based. It doesn't mean like we would hesitate to pull the trigger for a deeper level of anesthesia if we thought it required it. And I would also don't disagree with like categorizing a lot of those um, fistula patients with clotted access as ASA4s. And within our kind of moderate sedation, I work for a lot of different hospital systems, but for a lot of the guidelines it does, it, we're not required, but we are recommended to on ASA3, bound potty 3 and above to uh, consult. Or it's not very firm, but it's um, like anesthesia consults are suggested. So they try not to put us in a box on those. And I think it's different provider comfort and it's it's not wrong or right, or you can't possibly know if it's wrong or right going into it. But, you know, different providers have different levels of comfort with different procedures. And, and so if someone's using uh, deeper levels of anesthesia, I'm not going to fault them for that. Where I trained in fellowship, which was basically like a vascular access center, OBL type style, we had anesthesia or CRNA for all declot procedures. So it was, and it's actually very nice. I mean, I think it's a very nice way to practice when you can tell someone you're going to put them out because I mean, you know, some T-clots are wham, bam, and you're, and you're done pretty quick. And then some are kind of a slog. And I think that it's hard to know ahead of time, which type of the procedure it's going to be. And so, yeah, I mean, I would love to have anesthesia on board for some of those. And also for me, traditionally, like these are really my sickest patients that I deal with. So it's nice to have a team who's going to help you out. Yeah. And it's important to remember that the anesthesiologist can also offer a regional block. So if you've got a patient, let's remember that dialysis patients are not just in isolation, diabetics, they have heart failure, they have history of stroke, TIA. If you've got severe reduction of ejection fraction, and we've got patients in our cohort whose ejection fractions are under 20%, that's a patient that will you could kill with too much sedation. And as you said, it's hard to predict a case where you think it'll be 30 minutes. Next thing you know, you're in two and a half hours chasing your tail because the clot just won't disappear. Having anesthesia there for real-time monitoring is just incredible. And the ability to do a nerve block where patients don't feel anything but aren't getting the sedation that would potentially compromise their cardiovascular output, I think is revolutionary. And you survey different IRs, you're going to get different experiences. There's some OBLs where they're giving them Ativan and doing a declot with nothing. And right. other places that, you know, wouldn't touch a patient without anesthesia. Well, I was thinking about Nikai Mala, Chris, you know. Yeah, he blocks them. Yeah. That's right. He, he blocks them, but he doesn't do much sedation because he's so fast. But his patients may not be as sick either because it's the outpatient setting. That's a good point. I, I think the guy also, um, Shaul, and for the audience who might not know the guy, he, he's actually done a couple podcasts with us, one focused around declots and another about AV fistula creation. And I don't think he hesitates to just block his patient. So he said like learning how to do a regional block. I bet you there's actually plenty of interventionalists out there who are pretty comfortable doing a regional block, especially something for a declot. Pretty straightforward. I do want to talk a little bit about kyphoplasty because I think when, when I learned how to do kyphos, I learned it with doing moderate sedation. And then I realized how most of these patients are old. They're, they do not tolerate a kyphoplasty under moderate sedation very well, at least at least what I've seen. And speaking back to what you were saying, Vishal, it, it almost feels like you're torturing the patient when you're drilling into that bone or having to pull out the hammer. And so I switched to only doing 
worked with anesthesia involved. And then I let them decide if they want to do deep versus general, depending on whether the patient can protect their airway. And But it's not like you need them motionally apneic, obviously, but you do want them to be still and, and above all painless, right, for those. So I wanted to get, I don't know how many kyphos you guys are doing, but I wanted to see what your thoughts were on kyphos because that's the one where I hear people say a little bit of both. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to kick over to Vishal. I don't do kyphos. Yeah. Unfortunately, I don't have input on that either. You know, our, our section is pretty divided. So the neuro interventionalists and diagnostics, uh, radiologists are the ones doing the kyphos. I don't think they're doing them with general anesthesia. And I've got some colleagues that, you know, have a uniparticular approach and talk about how fast they are. I've noticed that Kaiser systems tend to be a little anesthesia hesitant. I think it's an overutilization per their perspectives, but I agree with everything you said, Aaron. Like, ASA doesn't take into account age, but I think age is definitely something that needs to be considered for patient comfort. Yeah, and then to just to bring it back to the the G tube, because I mean, a lot of those patients, this the G tubes that I put in, they're all almost all post traumatic brain injury and stroke patients at two of the they're basically trauma centers uh, as well as stroke centers. And a lot of them are probably ASA fours, just given the state that they're in. And they want to put a G tube in to get them, you know, get some nutrition in them to move things along. And but yet we do them pretty much all under moderate sedation. It's very rare we we bring in general anesthesia. So I do want to talk a little bit more about G tubes, Vishal, since that's really what started this whole conversation. Well, I mean, by definition, a patient with a either hemorrhagic or ischemic infarct is an ASA four. If a patient has a bleed with mass effect and you know is herniating, that's an ASA five. And so I struggle ethically, morally as a provider to then do an elective procedure, which is how I view the G-tube, short of a venting G-tube situation. Why are we doing elective procedures on ASA 5 and 4 patients? This checkbox medicine tendency to like trach and peg everybody seven days, 10 days post a catastrophic event to me seems a little hasty. Uh, I hear a lot of people saying, well, you're slowing down dispo, you're slowing down discharge. But if you look at these patients, it, they are not ready for transfer to a sniff. There's ample data out there that suggests better mortality the longer you wait on percutaneous G-tube or enteric interventions. And so I think we've had to evaluate our practices and have these uh, multidisciplinary discussions with both the neurosurgical and neurology services about timing and appropriateness for these patients. Because I've seen patients decompensate and aspirate from the G-tube placement, both with a trach and intubated. And so no intervention is without harm. Um, and I think the G-tube is traumatic at multiple stages, from the NG tube placement, from the insufflation, from the pexy to the puncture. I've seen the balloon-assisted gastrostomy go awry. Complications are just everywhere. And so I think it's a slippery slope when you start doing these elective procedures on ASA 4 and 5 patients, especially without anesthesia. Because again, I think we're putting ourselves in a precarious situation by not being compliant with our operative and periprocedural policies, which they're very intentional about stating that, as Chris said, anesthesia should be consulted if not present. Chris, what's your take? I have a few things to add about involving anesthesia for G-tubes, but I want to hear your take on the first. So I have a, a very different patient population, and I think that makes my perspective a little bit skewed, but most of my patients are not like stroke or TBI. A, a lot of our patient population is, um, I mean, not to say that we don't have that, but like when I think of our G2 population, it's a lot of head and neck uh, malignancy. 
And so a lot of these patients are having their procedure either, it's a mix. We have some that are just like very distant referrals. And so they actually come in and then they get plugged into like the, basically that head and neck surgery service or the OMSF or ENT. And then everything happens in-house. And then there's another uh, subset of patients who's probably 80% of our practice when it comes to G-tubes is that we're doing these procedures before they begin radiation or surgical treatment for their uh, malignancy. And so it, it slightly skews it one to healthier patients. But one of the things that I've, or a lot of times what we set up is, uh, or me personally, is I'll still set those patients up with anesthesia because one, they're outpatient and that's an easier kind of hill to climb with our anesthesia colleagues. If they know about it ahead of time, they can staff and do things a little bit more. I say staff and uh, prepare appropriately. And also I like anesthesia for these because they have a head and neck malignancy. Oftentimes the mass like affects the airway, even though their malinpotty may be okay. It's like they have a big laryngeal mass and I know that they can be a difficult airway to manage. So we'll have anesthesia on board ahead of time. But then there's also the, the patient population that they're perioperative. And so they've had this big head and neck surgery. You know, we've been consulted sometimes like after the jaw has been wired shut. And so for, for me, this, this is like a no brainer, like a, a post-operative neck or airway. I feel much more comfortable with anesthesia on board. And there's something for me, maybe people are doing their G-tube slicker, faster and smoother than me, but I mean... Every whichever way I seem to do it, I just feel like we put in like 20 French, 18 French G-tubes just seems like a, a big hole to push in somebody. Not that we wouldn't do one under local and appropriate circumstances like the ALS patients come to mind, but I like having a, a deeper level of sedation just to make the patients more comfortable. Yeah. I mean, the longest part of my G-tube is getting them adequately sedated because the G-tube part itself, it doesn't take very long. So one of the places I work at the common complaint is the availability of anesthesiologists. So part of the reason why they haven't, they don't do many kyphos is because anesthesia is not that available. And, or at least it's sort of what the common complaint is. And, uh, oftentimes, so it's a, it's a big stroke center. So oftentimes the anesthesiologist who covers IR, neuro IR is tied up in the uh, neuro IR suite. And they do, I mean, at this one particular hospital, I mean, Sometimes we have three or four G-tubes on the, on the schedule in, in one day. I'm definitely doing seven to 10 in a week. And so having an anesthesiologist available for all those would be problematic. And so that's why they've just got it sort of streamlined where you just make sure that the patient's as comfortable as possible with moderate sedation. So it is kind of like an access to care problem. But that being said, when I'm there, I'm just trying to make as comfortable as possible because it is a traumatic procedure. I'm not saying you can't keep a patient comfortable with moderate sedation with a G-tube. I mean, like, that that's not what I mean. I just mean that it's a combination of airway issues. A lot of times they're either about to go through a lot or they've already been through a lot. And so if I can have someone help me manage an airway or a complex airway in addition to keep them more comfortable than what I would be able to keep them, to me, it's just kind of a, a win-win. And access to care, I mean, you know, we could have a whole series of podcasts on that, but I guess like at the end of the day, like once I've kind of made my mind up, like this patient needs anesthesia and then, I mean, you always get the, I mean, this is very common to get a call and say, Hey, do you really think you can do it with moderate sedation? After I've kind of made that decision in my head that like this patient should be Mac, it's hard for me to walk that back because there's anesthesia unavailability. And so I, I mean, often just, I kind of dig in and I'm just like, look, if you guys want to do it at two in the morning, like I'll stay until the case is done. 
and then invariably somebody pops up available and they're able to like carve out a little bit of time to do a 30 minute G2. But once I've made that decision, I just find it very hard to like walk it back and be like, oh, well, we couldn't get an anesthesiologist. So now I'm going to do it moderate sedation. And not that I don't want to be a team player, but I mean, like when it comes like individual patient, like day to day, like system wide, like I, I mean, I think you can play that game a little bit more and saying that, hey, we're going to make it a big point to try and do as many of these under moderate sedation as possible. I just mean for that day with that patient, if I've already committed to Mac, I just had a very hard time. Like I just can't reverse that. Yeah, I agree, Chris. I mean, I think that's such a beautiful example of malicious compliance that exists in our practice that nobody should be telling us how to do these procedures. We are physicians. We have decades of experience. There's a reason our triggers are going off, that we recognize the risk of airway loss or inadequate sedation. And I think the access to care argument, in my mind, falls flat because if you need it, you need it. And you shouldn't compromise, I think, patient safety or the humanity of care you deliver. And I think part of our evolution as a specialty is the more IRs that are entering the OR space, the easier it will be to get anesthesia. Like at our level one trauma center, we are literally next door to anesthesia. We have block time two days a week at the Parnassus campus. We are not in the OR, but essentially we use anesthesia every single day, anywhere from two to five cases. I think the future of IR is to have fully staffed CRNAs on your team, on your service, so that you are nimble and flexible, so that if a case immediately slips from moderate sedation to deep, unexpectedly, that you can manage appropriately, uh, rather than, you know, calling a code and not being able to rescue. So I agree with you, Chris, wholeheartedly, that if, if you believe a patient would benefit from anesthesia, we have to hold that line and we can't compromise. And actually, I, I totally agree with you. I think like as, I mean, one, it's such an exciting time to be an interventional radiologist, but the flip side of that is we're doing, I mean, there's, we're just doing more and more invasive procedures. And I think we are going to need the idea now that like IR can get by, which is moderate sedation. I think that, that the level of complexity is going up. The level of patients are becoming sicker. Cases are going longer and harder that we're going to need better access to anesthesia. And I, I think it's very neat that some people who are the OBL space, you know, choose to it's a business decision, but you can choose to have dedicated anesthesia time where you have like a CRNA who comes over and puts all those patients to bed for different cases. So I'd also like to see a trend in that direction that anesthesia is going to be more and more utilized. And it seems like your practice is moving that way, right, Michelle? Yeah. I mean, I think we're trying to, you know, look at it from a real equity perspective and say, who are the patients that are most likely to suffer from a moderate sedation case? And I think the cases that I see over and over, given our patient population, will be, like you said, our G2 patient population and our dialysis patients. Uh, we recently looked at kind of the complication rate of patients with sedation who are undergoing fistulograms, not even D-clots. And after a pretty thorough analysis, the early results are showing that about 40% of our patients at our level one safety net hospital require or have features in their clinical history that would suggests anesthesia for their sedation, whether it's OSA with CPAP, altered ejection fraction, intolerance to a prior sedation case. And that number was striking to me because I don't know how many people are doing fistulograms with anesthesia because now we're kind of slipping down to this ASA 3 level. But a lot of your ASA 3 fistulograms might actually be ASA 4s that you don't recognize or that you're not aware of. Yeah, I mean, I would say, you know, I know vasosurgeons in the OBL space in Texas who they don't 
handle moderate station all they they always have a CRNA come in and make sure that patient is comfortable when they're doing their PAD cases, anything that they're doing endovascular in the OBL space. And to them, they're just like, I want a patient, you know. Right. They're like, of course. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's what they're used to. That's the way they've trained. And they're like, why would I mess with that? And, you know, part of our training is like, oh no, we can handle it. But I don't, I mean, how much do you really want to? I mean, I feel so much better when it's a sick patient or when it's a Kyfo or PTBD, having that anesthesiologist in the room, making sure the patient is not only comfortable, but cardiovascularly like stable. I don't have to divert my attention. I can focus on the procedure. Yeah. I don't know which surgical specialties are operating under moderate sedation, short of like very simple cosmetic outpatient stuff. Yeah. You know, I, you're right. You're right. I mean, I talked to Gopi, you know, Gopi's an ENT and she's like, I don't know how to do moderate sedation. She's like, I mean, that kind of like scares her, <laughs> you know? It's so funny that we're, we've become so, quote unquote, com- I guess, comfortable with it, but are we really? So I want to fill a little bit of time in for like the complications to avoid with moderate sedation. Like what, are, where have you guys seen where it gets, obviously you don't want to have to give Narcan, Flumazenil or anything like that, but any, anything else, I mean, other than people just getting hypotensive, what are the kind of issues have you seen and, and ways to avoid it? I'll start with you, Chris. So... It's funny that you mentioned, like, uh, you know, hate to give Narcan. And for me, like, whenever a patient is kind of decompensating on the table, like, one of the first things I think of is is Narcan. Not that I want to unnecessarily reverse somebody, but if a patient's going south, like, that's one of the things, like, that's kind of in my algorithm to, like, take off the table. And I'm not flipping about it, but that's certainly, like, whenever I'm working through, like, a patient who's getting sick quickly and, and I don't necessarily know the reason, I wouldn't hesitate to use Narcan. And that's one of the metrics the hospital uses. Like, I don't want to say they, they ding us, but you know, reversals are, it's one of the measured metrics. So airway is an issue. Uh, oh, sorry. What was the question again? Like, oh, complications to avoid with moderate sedation. Okay. Well, over sedating, but under sedating is also, I mean, like it, there's that like Goldilocks zone that you're really trying to hit. I mean, I, I hate it when my patients are under sedated, but you know, definitely don't want to over sedate, like lose an airway, definitely blood pressure control. So, you know, you don't want your patients becoming hypotensive based off the anesthesia. I'm sure there's some other stuff. Nausea. Yeah. Those are the three that jump Na- out. Nausea is a big one. Yeah. But I mean, nausea, like, I mean, I don't, not that I, I, I'm, I don't, I don't like it when my patients are nauseous, but that's not too tough. Uh, so I just think of like hypotension and airway issues. Yeah. One other thing that I started doing and incorporating with my modern station cocktails is, uh, is 25 of Benadryl to start. I just start out with like 20, 25 IV, 25 milligrams IV Benadryl with my one in 50 when I'm just starting out. And it makes them kind of sleepy and it relaxes a little bit more without adding more narcotic. I don't know if you guys ever tried that, but I I find that it seems to work. Yeah, Dr. Mark Wilson introduced me to that concept when I was a resident. And I think fentanyl plus Benadryl is a magical cocktail that, that, you know, doesn't actually trigger a true moderate sedation category. It's almost like fentanyl can be used without slipping into moderate sedation. So I might call that light sedation. Uh, you had mentioned what are the complications. I think in younger patients, you can have this paradoxical agitation. I remember doing a uh, bone marrow biopsy on a patient who was like 17 who had told me, I've done this seven times before. This will be no problem. And after seven of Versed and 300 of fentanyl, they were like screaming wide awake on the table. And this is what I was doing locums. And I just remember thinking like, what are we doing? This is not the right way to be practicing. And I think the big complication to avoid is death. I mean, you don't want a patient to have cardiac arrest in your suite, and unfortunately I have seen this happen, 
And, you know, the, our colleagues, uh, I think Nam et al. in the Journal of Clinical Medicine 2022 put out a, a report looking at seven-year single-center kind of retrospective review and basically found that the patients who had cardiac arrest had a higher ASA score of average 3.6 compared to the ones that did not with an ASA score of 2.8. So I think what we can't predict is who's going to have this potential untoward cardiac arrest, which could come from either loss of airway or being obstructed or just too much medication on a really sick heart. It's up to us, I think, to be the experts, to be the real doctors, to be the surgeons, if you will, to say, hey, this is a sick patient that needs anesthesia. I'm not going to compromise on their safety. And if you're seeing patients who are threes or fours, I think you should think twice uh, before just saying like, okay, let's sedate. There won't be any problem. Totally agree. Well, guys, I mean, any th- any final thoughts before we wrap up this combo on uh, anesthesia versus moderate sedation? I'll start with you, Chris. So I did want to plug uh, lidocaine. I have said it before on other podcasts, but, you know, I think a lot of the kits that I use come with 5 mLs, like 5 mL vial of lidocaine. I never, I mean, 5 mLs of lidocaine is like nothing. I mean, that's, so I would just say like, use lidocaine liberally. Jim Creedy, who is a former guest, interventional radiologist, a lot of people know, um, but he gave a talk on this that, that, you know, has always stuck with me. It's like, as interventional radiologists, sometimes we treat lidocaine like it's like this precious gold, but like to use a lot of it, use it liberally, and you'll have more comfortable patients and you'll use less sedation. The other cocktail that I like to use, I like we talked about Benadryl. I'll use a Benadryl-Zofran combo ahead of time, and that also works like a charm. Like it's like the pre-party to the party or like the pre-sedation to the sedation. And I find that, you know, that, and sometimes I'll layer on like, um, with patients who are like very anxious, we have like a significant like fibromyalgia patient population and I'll give them some Ativan, IV Benadryl and Zofran before the, the case gets started. And that really works them to get them a little bit more mellowed out by the time that they get into the actual IR suite to do the procedure. They're just a little bit less high strung. I think it's hard for patients to go from like you're, you know, you're literally prepping the skin and they're like, I'm not asleep yet. I haven't had anything yet. And they just get very, very worked up. And so I get them a little bit relaxed in uh, the pre-op area. And then also for patients who are hard to sedate either because they're kind of worked up like that. I like doing, uh, we'll call it like the quiet procedure where we just don't talk as much during the procedure. So there's nothing for the patient to kind of anchor to, like that keeps them awake, like our, our little chatter about the weekend. And so we do a silent procedure and I'll usually put like a little, like a, a washcloth, like a warm cloth, washcloth over their eyes. My nurse will say, you know, it's like you're going to the spa. And I think all those things about like setting the environment help like facilitate good moderate sedation. You know, Chris, who pushed back once when I was a fellow on the whole Lido, you know, like, like something of Lido is uh, Stokes. She was like, well, do you know you can cause lidocaine toxicity? And I was like, I guess, and she so she biffed me on what how much will cause lidocaine toxicity. So yeah, I mean, it's not something that should be ignored. You should know your lidocaine doses, but I mean, you're not you're not going to go above it with five mLs. That's what I'll tell you. That's true. Yeah, no, at least ten. Yeah. Do any of us know what lidotoxicity? What, what? How much would cause that? I thought it was. I thought it was sixty milligrams. Sixty. Uh, we just That's recently a- had that where I had to. It literally took, we had a patient who needed a, I can't remember, they needed two procedures. They were ALS, and in order to do the first part, we needed about 40, it was a port removal. 
40 cc's of Lido to take out a port that was 12 years old. And she had a miserable time taking it. It was almost pinch-off syndrome. I was worried it was going to fracture. And by the time we were done with that and ready to transition to the G-tube, the prospect of doing the whole G-tube with like 10 cc's of lidocaine and the patient's eyes told me that she wasn't for it, I had to say, we're going to reschedule so that you're not prone to lidocaine toxicity. Chris, I love your mention of lidocaine. I think colleagues that train with Dr. Traratola often joke about he won't let you start the case until all the 10 cc's of lidocaine have been delivered. And they often just kind of squeeze it out on the towel next to them to show that it's out. But we could do a whole episode on the power of buffered lidocaine because I'm a fanatic for buffered lidocaine because I think it it allows you to be absolutely perfect where patients could have a completely painless procedure. Understand for the trainees that lidocaine is intrinsically acidic. 1% lidocaine has a pH of 6. 2% lido with epi has a pH of 4. So it's kind of that mantra, it's going to hurt before it helps. And I'm not a fan of that. So if you can buffer your lidocaine, it's it's truly magical. You had mentioned kind of setting the scene. I think language concordance, cultural concordance is huge in your cases. So like nurses are supposed to be checking on patients to see their pain score during sedation. If you have patients that either don't feel empowered to speak up or don't speak the language that the nurse is communicating with them, I think you may run the risk of under sedating your, you know, marginalized patient populations. And, you know, I think you had asked if there's anything to leave the listeners with. You've done some incredible work with imposter syndrome. And I think a lot of people, you know, center their identity on imposter syndrome, kind of thinking like, I got to prove myself all the time. And I know I do. But there's also this concept of the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is like the opposite of imposter syndrome. And I fear that as a specialty with the worst diversity and whatnot amongst the major specialties, that there are providers out there who think they're better than they actually are. And so I think if we can recenter our approach to understand that no intervention is without harm, ask ourselves, how can we be less traumatic to our patients? It might go a really long way to kind of meeting the expectations of our patients, uh, no matter where they are. Yeah. I wanted to talk, one thing that you mentioned, Bishaw, is when the nurse is not looking at the patient's face, that drives me crazy. When they're over sitting at their computer charting and you're in the middle of procedure and you can read so much in the patient's face if they're wincing. That's one of my pet peeves is just, as I'll just say, I'll just stop what I'm doing and say, hey, you, you got to be looking at the patient so that you know if they're in pain because I can't do both things at once, right? I can be looking at the screen and looking at their face. So that that is one thing that always drives me crazy. The other thing was, you know, Chris, you know what procedure I would love to have anesthesia for if it was possible for every single one? Nephrostomy tubes. Well, those and renal biopsies, you know. Renal biopsies? Yeah, just the blood pressure drives me crazy. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? And and just (laughs) having the blood pressure under control, not having to be constantly worried about that uh, would be amazing too. No, I think, I mean, it it would be great to have anesthesia for every case. It's just sometimes the workflow just doesn't allow for it. The availability doesn't allow for it. But you guys make some great points that like sometimes you just you just got to fight for these things because it's really leads to be, you know better patient care of course but Aaron you mentioned this like false construct of multitasking right this idea that after doing a month of ICU training in your residency you can manage a presser drip while also doing the procedure interpreting the diagnostics teaching and following up with your patient i think is dangerous no surgeon is doing that we're not considered 
anesthetists or, you know, sedationists. That's not what we do. It's not what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to focus on the procedure. And if we, you know, we have like a no phones policy in our operating room suite so that we don't have people distracted from the task at hand. You need a practitioner to focus on sedation. That's the nurse's role. No hospital policy will allow a single provider to do the case and also monitor the sedation. And so I think for the trainees out there, don't get caught up thinking you have to do all of this at the same time. I think we have to be very adamant and strict about saying this is either a nurse sedate case or an anesthesia case, but we're not going to do both. Well said. I think we'll, that's all I got, guys. I think that's a good, great place to put a pin in it. Thank you to Vishal and, and Chris for coming back on the show and uh, looking forward to hanging out, the three of us, Paris, guest, MSK, another, another plug for him. Very nice. All right, Vishal, thanks for coming on, man. Aaron, thanks for having me. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Aaron. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Dong, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhirter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, Josh Spencer, design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz, social media and PR by Ann Dang, Manisha Naganathanahali, and Manbir Singh Sublit. Administrative support provided by Jim Lloyd Kinnebrew. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening. 